Today's reading comes from the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bryce. Well, for the uh, season of Lent and beyond that, the season right after that, which is uh, called Easter Tide, which is really about the next two months or so, what we're going to do at this portion of our worship services, uh, we're going to talk about um, Christian spiritual disciplines. We're going to look through about 12 different uh, forms of Christian habits, different Christian practices. And I'm sure when some of you hear that and you think discipline, habits, like all all that stuff, it just sounds like a lot of work. It just sounds like effort. And some of you may be thinking, okay, great. I I can take a hiatus from Redeemer for the next two months, have a little time off, Um, which you're free to do. But I hope you don't uh, because these habits, these kind of ancient spiritual practices are real gifts. And uh, yes, they require effort. Yes, they require work. But not in the same way you you might think of like training for a marathon, which takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. It's more like uh, the effort or work involved in chewing. So like if if you were to come over to our house for dinner and you were... uh, uh, you know, coming in off of a really long, hard day at work, you, you're stressful, you're exhausted, you had to work so much, you, you skipped lunch, and you're just kind of coming in worn down and starving. And we set before you a plate of freshly baked bread with, you know, melted sl- butter slathered on it and a perfectly cooked ribeye right next to it and roasted Brussels sprouts with Parmesan cheese and bacon bits up in there and balsamic stuff on top, which this is, I know this is wrong of me to be doing this, this close to lunch, but if we were to serve that to you, I don't think that you would say, didn't I tell you how hungry and tired I am? Why would you put all this work on me? Do you know how much work it's going to take to cut all this up and chew all of this and swallow all of this? You wouldn't say that because you get it. Yeah, there's going to be some work involved, but the work is designed to lead to my fulfillment. It's designed to, like, restore me. And so it's the same sort of way. God gives us these, Christian, God gives us these practices, these disciplines, not as, not as a burden, not as a, hey, get, you know, buckle up, train for a marathon. It's going to be brutal. But it's, these, are, these are mechanisms. These are means by which you are to, you, you're nourished. So... If you are feeling um, spiritually bored, if you feel like you're just kind of spiritually numb, you're just kind of going through the motions, um, these are um, God's gift to you so that you can connect with Him more personally, more intimately. 
You can experience his love in a more personal way. If you're somebody who's not a Christian and you are curious about what does it look like to connect with God, how do I go from believing in God, maybe in a vague general sense, to actually encountering him personally, that's what, th- that's what these are for. That's what these, this is what these do. So, like I said, for the next few months, we're going to talk about 12 of these, one at a time. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's enough to kind of get us going. And so the definition of what a spiritual practice is, uh, I will say, a spiritual practice is it's a God-given practice. It's not Matt Howell's idea. It's not Redeemer's idea. It's not the church's idea. These are, these are God-given practices that are designed to lead you to more fully experience and express God's love. That's it. For you to experience more deeply God's love for you personally and for you to become the kind of person that grows in your love for God and grows in your love for other people. So that's what we're going to do. And for this morning, just to get us started, I thought it would be nice for us to talk about the uh, practice of meditation. The practice of meditation. The reason I wanted to start with this one is because this may be the most misunderstood of all of the Christian practices and habits, and yet I think it's the most underrated. So let's talk about this under three big headings, Uh, what it is, what it does, and how to do it. What is it, uh, what does it do, and uh, how you can do it. So first, uh, let's talk about what it even is. What do we even mean by that? Meditation, of course, is very popular these days. There are meditation centers, healing centers all over Midtown. You can, uh, you can go through guided meditation with you know, professionals. Uh, and when you hear that word, you might be thinking of somebody sitting in the lotus position, you know, eyes closed, emptying their mind. That's, that's sort of the imagery that you get with, uh, when you think about that word in, in, modern, in modern contexts. I don't know if you've happened to see the TV show Parks and Rec, but there's an episode of Parks and Rec where one of the characters, Chris Traeger, takes one of his co-workers, Ron Swanson, to a meditation center for an all-day kind of guided meditation deal. And uh, if you haven't seen the show, what you need to know about Ron Swanson is that he is a very simple, straightforward, down-to-earth kind of guy and is not into stuff like meditation. And so they go, and Chris invites Ron to sit down on the mat with everybody. They're all sitting, you know, with their legs crossed, and Ron says, no, I prefer to stand, and stands in the back holding his coat and goes through the whole exercise like that. And here's what he says about that experience. He says, quote, All told, we were in there about six hours, and no, I was not meditating. I just stood there quietly, breathing. There were no thoughts in my head whatsoever. My mind was blank. I don't know what those other crackpots were doing. And uh, he says this, and Chris, the guy that brought him, is blown away by how superior he is in his advancement of meditation already, that he was able to completely empty his mind for six hours, which is something, you know, he's never personally been able to attain to himself. But that's, that's the image. That's the idea, is, is meditation is, is uh, emptying your mind for the goal to be uh, detachment, you're detaching from the world. You're detaching from your desires. It's for you to empty and be, be alone, in other words. Christian meditation is the exact opposite. The goal is not detachment. The goal is attachment, for you to attach to God more personally, more, more intimately. 
And the way that you do it is not by emptying your mind, but it's by filling your mind with God's words. I mean, look, look at this psalm. This psalm gives you a great kind of um, uh, overview of what meditation even is. It gives, it gives you this, this picture of somebody who's truly blessed. Blessed is the man. And then in verse 1, it tells you all the things that this person does not do. Well, they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. But okay, what do they actually do? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates, there's that word, day and night. What meditation is, it's, it's to think about something deeply. It's to take something into your mind and to replay it over and over and over. It's, it's to churn, it's to mull on something. Uh, Martin Luther has this great image. I put it in your bulletin. He says that to meditate is to chew over something in the heart, to chew over something in the heart. This is like, um, think about the way that you eat a jawbreaker or the way that you eat a Jolly Rancher. You don't eat a Jawbreaker or a Jolly Rancher in the same way that you would eat like Sonic Ice where you're just, you know, crunching it. It would destroy your face if you did that. You, you, you're savoring it. You're kind of rolling it around in your mouth back and forth and back and forth. That's the idea. It's taking God's word, his, his words as, the, as they're revealed in Scripture, and, and you're not scarfing them. You're savoring them. That's why you even have this couplet of meditating and delighting are kind of the same idea. Now, the reality is, is you and I, don't, we don't need an education on how to do this. We already do this constantly. In fact, there's another pastor, Brian Habig, who, I, who said, um, gave, gave this um, analogy, but he said, if, if you've ever had this experience where you go into the shower and for whatever reason, something comes in your mind where you start thinking about something that just kind of irritates you. And then you're taking your shower, and by the time you get out of your shower and you kind of turn off the water, you're like ready to hurt somebody. You know why that is? Was because you just spent the whole time in there ruminating on this thing until it started to touch your emotions. It went from being just this idea in your head, and you ruminated, and you thought about it, and you thought about it, and then it kind of, your heart got involved. That's the idea. It's, it's thinking, taking in God's word and ruminating on it, mulling over it until it actually starts to activate your heart. The challenge for you and for me is that it is not our normal practice to chew on words. It is our practice to scroll through words, to skim, to um, go quickly. We, we prefer sound bites and tweets and memes and captions. We want something quick, we want it fast, and we're going to move on to the next thing. Doing this uh, feels very foreign to us. To slow and to, to, to take a, a, a verse of Scripture or a phrase of Scripture, even a word, and to just sit with it, that feels counterintuitive to efficient driven, fast-paced Americans. And yet, the practice of Christian meditation involves slowing down, chewing on, ruminating over something. That's, that's what it is. Now, you may be thinking, okay, why would I waste my time doing that? Why would I do that? What does it do? It's a fair cost-benefit kind of question coming from you. Um, but let's talk about it. Question two, what does it do? That's what it is 
what does it do? Well, if you look at this um, psalm as it goes on in verse 3, it gives you a picture of someone who meditates, and the picture that you get is of a tree. That's the, that's the metaphor that this is using. Look, look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So if you think about that image of a tree being somebody who meditates, there's so many things you could pull from this, but let me give you three real quick. If you commit yourself to meditation, you will experience transformation. That's number one. You'll experience transformation. Here's a tree with all this fruit growing out of it. That's the image. It's, it's yielding, producing all this fruit. When you get to the New Testament in Galatians 5, Paul tells you what that fruit is. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And you hear that list and every human being says, I want those things. Who does not want more peace, less anxiety? Who does not want more patience and less stress, less irritability? The question that we all have, though, is, okay, how do you get it? What do you do to get that? The Bible's answer is this, meditation. That's how you get that. It leads to transformation. Here's the second thing. Meditation, um, if you do it, you'll also experience stability, Stability, meaning you aren't controlled by external circumstances anymore. If you notice, the, the tree is compared to chaff at the end of uh, that verse there. Chaff. Chaff is the flaky, dry husk on the outside of grain seeds. It's kind of like, the, um, like the, the papery outside of an onion. You know, it's this, it's this, it has no substance. The wind blows it away. It's just flaky. It's kind of worthless stuff. The comparison is, if you are not rooted, if you're not anchored to the ground, you're, you're, the wind blows you away. Your joy comes and goes totally depending on your circumstances. Your well-being is determined on how well your circumstances around you are going. That is someone who is not anchored. You are weightless. You're completely determined by what's happening around you. Compare that to somebody who is anchored to the ground, someone who is rooted like a tree, their well-being is no longer determined by what's happening around them. doesn't mean that they're stoic. I mean, they're still a human being with feelings, but they're stable. That's the second point of this um, imagery of being a tree. You're stabilized. Here's the third. It doesn't just lead to transformation and stability. Meditation also leads to you being a blessing. Trees are awesome, not just for their sake, but awesome for what they do for people around them. I mean, if you think about what, a tree's, what trees produce, they produce oxygen, they, produce, they provide shade, you've got nuts and seeds and fruit. It's a, trees are a blessing. In fact, for our honeymoon, uh, you met Catherine a second ago, our honeymoon, we went to Northern California. And on that honeymoon, we decided to take a day and go on a day trip to go see the redwood trees, the redwood forest. If you, you know, these giant, massive, 
ancient trees that you know grow in that part of Northern California. And um, you know, if you've ever seen these things or seen, you, pictures don't even do them justice. They're like something out of like a Tolkien book. It's like these crazy things. If you hear that and you think, wait, y'all took a day on your honeymoon to go look at trees? I would say yes, and we have zero regrets. It was awesome, because trees are awesome. There's a, there's a local organization, uh, midtown.org, and last year, I don't know if they're still doing this, but at least last year they were raising money to try to plant a tree on Madison right in front of Cash Saver so that the people who are waiting for the bus right there would have some shade to sit under so that during the summer months when the sun is oppressive, they wouldn't just be out there getting beat down by the sun. They could sit in the shade of that tree. I don't know where they are with that project, but I, when I heard that, I was like, "That's a, of course, trees are awesome. They provide shade and all of this beauty and all, the, all of this stuff. So here's the point, is that meditation is not just you and Jesus enjoying private little groovy vibes in the corner. It is designed for you to also be transformed into a person who's a blessing to the world. That as you meditate on God's word, you are getting his values, his instincts, you're, you're, you're being conformed into somebody that starts to think about the world outside of you. How can I be a blessing to this person, to this neighborhood, to my coworkers, to you know, whatever? That's what meditation does. Transformation, stability, blessing. Now, you may hear all that and you think, okay, I'm not very religious. I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know. How do you do that? How do you do this thing? Well, let's talk about that. Last question. How, how do you do this? And, and you know, in the series, we're going to try to be really practical and give you some very concrete footholds to try to figure out how you can incorporate this into your own life. So I hope this is helpful, but I'm going to give you three. Three quick things that are, are, I think, practical ways of how you can actually start to practice this. Here's the first one, is to um, set your expectations. Adjust your expectations, you might say. Nobody takes a, an acorn or a, a, a seed from an apple tree and you go out into your backyard and you plant the seed or you plant the acorn and you go inside and you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and you go out and expect to find a tree. Nobody does that. We know that trees take a very long time. Point being is that meditation is designed to lead to transformation, but not instantaneously. It's when you take in God's word day after day week after week, month after month, and year after year after year that you become the kind of person that is more loving and more joyful and more faithful and more gentle and on and on and on. It doesn't happen in a 15-minute segment once over a cup of coffee. That's why we have the image of a tree and not of a firecracker. But again, the challenge for modern Americans is we want instant results we want immediate gratification, and we lack the imagination to, to think about something that, okay, if I'm doing something over and over and over and over and I'm not experiencing something in the moment, that it's not actually doing something to me in a, in a bigger kind of way. I mean, if you think about eating, every meal that you eat, most meals are forgettable. Not all meals are 
amazing. But what do they do? They nourish you. They keep you alive. They sustain you. Meditation is the same way. You do it over and over and over and over and over. And long-term, over the course of your life, God transforms you. So that's the first thing is just, one, to just adjust your expectations. Here's the second thing. Stop and listen. Stop and listen. I don't know if you've seen the TV show 60 Minutes, but 60 Minutes is an amazingly exciting show. And uh, a few years ago, they did this bit on Rick Rubin. If you don't know who Rick Rubin is, he's this very famous music producer. Um, He started Def Jam Records in his NYU dorm room, uh, I think his freshman year in college. Uh, He has produced music for across almost every genre. I mean, he's done stuff for the Beastie Boys and the Avett Brothers and Johnny Cash and Slayer and Kesha and just musicians just like stream to him to produce his stuff. And so Anderson Cooper's sitting down with him in this segment and he asks him these questions. He says, so um, do you play any instruments? And Rick Rubin says, barely. He says, well, do you know how to work a soundboard? He says, no. He says, I have no technical ability, and I know nothing about music. And Anderson Cooper's like, what are you being paid for then? And it was a fair question. Why are, what is your gift? Like, what is your deal? What do you do? Why are musicians literally taking pilgrimages to come to your recording studio so that you can do their projects? What is it? And you find out that um, what he does so well is he listens. In fact, this video, it shows you he's got this giant, this giant bushy white beard, and he lays down. He's got no shoes on. He's laying down, and the music is playing, and his eyes are closed, and he's just doing this. And he's just listening. And Anderson Cooper says, like, what are you, what are you listening for? And um, he says, I'm listening for a feeling. And Anderson Cooper goes, How do you listen to a feeling? Like, this doesn't make any sense. But I think what's happening is that here you have somebody who is uh, open and available and very attuned to what's in front of him. And he has this uncanny ability to listen and to hear the thing that that musician is, is really doing, the heart of what they're doing, and he's able to draw it out and bring it to the forefront and really magnify who they are as, a, as an artist. In the same way... When you're, when you're listening to the words of God, that's what you're doing. You, you, are, you are pausing. You're giving enough time to be open and to available to what is the Lord going to do? How is he going to take this word and press it into your life so it's particularized for you? That doesn't mean you're listening for an audible voice from God in the room. You're not going to sit there and hear, hey, you need to send the Howell family on a month-long, all-expense-paid vacation to Europe. Thus saith the Lord. You may hear that, and if you do, I would not, you know, encourage you to quench the spirit, but... um, most of the time, I'd say what, what, what you're doing is you're, you're listening for God's word as he has already spoken in his scripture 
what, how is he taking the truth of that and just personalizing it to you? That takes time. That takes listening. I'll, I'll give you an example of what this looked like for me this past week. I was um, thinking about Psalm 23, just the first line, the Lord is my shepherd. And I'll just give you a little window into my, what the process kind of looked like for me. I, I, I thought about that. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He's a shepherd. What, is, what does a shepherd do? And I started to think about what, is, what do shepherds do? And I thought, well, shepherds lead their sheep. The shepherds provide for their sheep. Shepherds protect their sheep from wolves and things like that, predators. And as I, I mean, of course, shepherds do other stuff, but those were the three things that kind of came to mind. And then I don't know why this was the question that came to my mind, but I started to think, okay, what of those three activities that a shepherd does, which of those three most resonates with me right now? And I'm just kind of listening. I'm just kind of like sorting through my heart, sorting through my life. And the one that kind of sensed like it felt more personal to me was that the Lord protects a shepherd protects his sheep. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I wonder why that. Why was that the one that kind of stood out to me? And then I thought, okay, wow. Yeah, this week I have felt uniquely frail. I have felt uniquely scared and fragile and vulnerable. And so the thought of God as the one who protects me felt really meaningful to me. And so that's just, that's, that's just what I'm doing in that moment. I'm sure if you looked at that passage, it, it, you'd have a totally different experience, not something weird and bizarre that has no connection to that verse. It's, it's the Lord taking that verse and saying, okay, what does it look like? What does it mean for me to be your shepherd? That's what you're doing. You're pausing. You're allowing enough time, allowing enough space to actually listen to what, does the, what is the Lord saying through the words that he's already spoken. So that's the second thing, second kind of um, uh, practical foothold. Here, here's the third in the last one. Uh, the last way to do it would be to be clear on what the point is, to be clear on the point. What I love about, at least in Presbyterian circles, when we talk about spiritual disciplines and practices and things like that, we use the language of it being a means of grace, and uh, I like that language because it distinguishes between what a, what a means and what an end is. Meditation is not an end. There's not an end of grace, meaning you don't meditate for the point of meditating. There's no, there's no person with a clipboard over your shoulder monitoring your progress to make sure that you did it. The point is not to do it. It's a means. So what is the end? What, what is the point then? Here's the point. The point is communion with Jesus. That's the point. The point is communion with Jesus. In fact, if you look at this, this uh, imagery, there's a detail of it I haven't mentioned yet, but you have a tree, but if you notice in verse 3, it's rooted next to streams of water. A tree cannot produce water for itself. It has to take in something from the outside and draw it up into itself. That's what a tree does. It's fascinating, in John chapter 7, centuries after this psalm was written, Jesus stands up at this public festival, and he announces to a giant crowd of people, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He wasn't selling bottled water. He was saying, I am the water. If you're thirsty, if you are truly spiritually dehydrated, come to me and drink. And so here's what's fascinating is you have this tree 
If we're the tree in this image, Jesus is the water. He is the endless streams of life-giving water that we plant next to and continue to draw from what we need up into our very being. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the water, and I have living waters. This fascinating theme. And so when you get to the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, it's the stark contrast. As he is dying on the cross, do you know what he cries out? I thirst. He's the one that's crying out, thirsty, dying, dehydrated, withering. Here you have someone who is the very source of water itself. He is a bottomless ocean of life-giving water, and on the cross, he is becoming a parched desert. You know why? Because he is taking our place. He's bearing in his very being and in his body the punishment that you and I deserve. Because the reality is you and I were designed to meditate on God day and night. That's how we were designed. And if we're being honest, and we can be honest at church, we rarely give much thought to God at all, much less meditate on him. We meditate on our finances We meditate on our future. We meditate on how we look, how people receive us, perceive us. That's what we meditate on. And yet, here is this one who lived the perfect life, and he's the one that is getting wrung out completely dry. He's taking our place. He is getting emptied on the cross for the punishment that you and I deserve. You know why? It's so that we could drink in life. We could drink in the water that he provides for us. He gives away his life so that we could have it. Here's what this means. When you are meditating, when you are actually turning your attention towards God, you are looking at, spiritually speaking, someone who has always been meditating on you. He has always thought of you day and night. You have been his delight. You have been the one that he thought it worthwhile to give up everything for in order to have. Which means that before verse 2 describes you, it describes him. He's the one that delights in you. He's the one who thinks about you day and night. So, let's be clear on the point of meditation. Don't don't meditate as a form of uh, religious homework. Don't meditate as a way to... Uh, impress God and bribe Him into changing your life or changing your circumstances. Don't meditate on Scripture as some technique, some like spiritual life hack to turn you into a more grateful, mindful person. Meditate so that you can encounter the one who has meditated on you and the one who does meditate on you. That's the point. Christian meditation, that's what it is. That's what it does. That's, in some ways, how to do it. I consider that an invitation for you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we uh, stop, as we pause, as we think about these things, Father, I pray that you would not have us leave here feeling burdened by this or feeling ashamed that, oh, we don't do this or I've never done this or I barely do this. Father, prevent this and protect us from having this be something that feels like a burden that weighs on us, but I pray that you would help us to see this as a gift, as a way that you are inviting us to experience and to delight in the one who delights in us. 
Father, give us uh, the grace that we need to apply uh, the appropriate level of effort and energy into seeking your face that we might ultimately encounter the one who has always and first sought our face. Show us yourself and show us the goodness of your beauty. We pray all this in Jesus' name.